One day, some parents brought their little children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But when the disciples saw this, they scolded the parents for bothering him. Then Jesus called for the children and said to the disciples, Let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. In the 1980s, when I was growing up, my mother did not take us to church very often. But uh, when we did go to church, it was because we were visiting my grandmother. My grandmother went to this little church, Russellville Assembly of God, a small town, about 4,000 people, a really small church, Assembly of God's folks, so you can imagine what all that entails. And I remember the church was so small that when they released us for our own little uh, children's ministry moment, Uh, We couldn't stay in that building because that building, despite what it looks like, was really small. There was a trailer adjacent to it, and we would go outside into the trailer, and I have no doubt that the United Methodists would say, like, that is not safe sanctuary, is approved. Uh, This rusty old trailer, and our Sunday school was taught by this rusty old woman. She had to be two days older than creation itself. She was probably like 50. Uh, (laughs) She probably really was like probably around like 80. And, you know, I, I don't remember anyone in the church ever knowing my name. And I know, I remember thinking like, we're not like here consistently enough. But at the same time, there was this little woman who would teach my Sunday school every single time. And she knew my name. And she always remembered me. And she was always glad I was there. And I don't remember anything that she taught. I I remember going through like little stories of Jesus. I think it's how I knew the stories of Jesus before I ever like started going to church when I was later in high school. I already had some knowledge of these stories of Jesus because this little old woman was just like teaching me these these lessons. And I remember, like, nobody else in the church knew my name, but despite the fact that me and my siblings were there so inconsistently, she knew our names. She taught us every single time we were there. And she even somehow managed to put together, like, this little children's um, one-time choir event, which was basically me, my three siblings, and, like, one or two other kids. And it was a disaster, Because I remember, like, first of all, you're trying to put together, like, a children's choir to sing one time, and you got kids that don't show up every week. But I remember, like, we were standing on the stage, and we were singing our song, and my brother had this sucker, and he was just, like, eating it. (laughs) And I remember, like, just being like, it is my job as the oldest brother to end this right now. And this cannot be ended at any other time than in this children's choir moment. And so I reached over, and I grabbed that sucker he started screaming bloody murder. And we never had a choir again. 
But in little small town Missouri, where nobody remembers my name, where I'm, I'm, I'm walking around and I'm wearing the same clothes every single day and they're, 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 they're clothes that were older than me. And I didn't feel loved. There's this little old woman two days older than creation who knew my name and remembered me and was glad I was there. And she taught me that Jesus loved me. And she taught me that I was more than just poor white trash. Do you remember those of you who grew up going to church? Do you remember the people who taught you Sunday school when you were small? Do you remember that? Raise your hand if like you remember. Yes. Do you remember how old they were? But you remember them for a reason, right? It's interesting to me to think back about like women like this or or people who taught you Sunday school, like that, that, that they realized even then that children are not the future of the church. The children really are the church right now. And even you, like years later, you are now the old people. You're 50, Greg. Are you 50, Greg? Yeah, Greg's 50. Man doesn't have any gray hair, but he's 50. You're, you're, you're the older people. And the little children in our church are going to remember you or have the possibility of remembering you. And you're like, wait, where did the time go? Like, I was the little kid. And now I'm old enough to be the teacher. But then you think about like the people who taught you and many of them are gone now. And you're grateful that they didn't say, ah, they're the future of the church. They're not worth my time. You're grateful that they understood that children are the church now. Roman society did not highly value children. There was a very strong hierarchy in Roman society. Children didn't produce anything. Children didn't legislate anything. They weren't involved in politics. They didn't pay taxes, and they certainly couldn't go fight for the Roman army. And so children who were basically a drag on an empire are not really at the, the top of that hierarchy, especially the poor children that Jesus interacted with. The poor children that Jesus interacted with, the children who Jesus encountered in Galilee were socially insignificant, largely without advocates from a communal point of view, and usually more vulnerable to mistreatment or illness than were most adults. In other words, like just the average Roman walking around Palestine or anywhere else in the empire would see a child, it's poor Jewish trash. Not worth my time. They don't contribute to society. They're a drag on society. And ancient Judaism was really a blessing in this environment because Judaism has always deeply valued children. Now, I should be honest, mostly they valued male children, but they valued girls too. Just male children were the crown of a family. 
But as a, as a general rule, they deeply valued children, which is unique in this setting because Jewish children still didn't contribute anything. They didn't pay taxes. They couldn't legislate. They couldn't, they couldn't fight in Israel's wars or defend the nation or, or bring about the Messiah. But these parents are bringing their children to Jesus as an act of love, understanding that Jesus' disposition toward children is that these children are loved in spite of the fact that they create nothing, in spite of the fact that they produce nothing, in spite of the fact that they can defend nothing and can legislate nothing and can promote no financial or national or political agendas. They're bringing children to Jesus under the assumption that Jesus' Father loves these children just as they are simply because they are. What makes us part of the people of God is not our contributions, but our identity as beloved of God. That this is so problematic for the disciples is evidenced by the fact that, like, I mean, I mean that the disciples are so co-opted by adulthood is evidenced by the fact that you have a society that deeply values children. These people value their children enough to bring them to Jesus, to touch them and heal them and take selfies with them. And the disciples are like, no, 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 no. Jesus is too busy for that. Bring your children back later when they can tithe. Bring your children back later when they can contribute something by turning a wrench and helping fix the building or maintain some ministry or something. Bring them back later. Then, you know, they are the future, but we are the present. And so they're shooing children away. And the degree to which they're doing this is really showing that like their disinterest in children shows that they do not understand how radically Jesus' message upturns the world's hierarchies. That the whole point of the kingdom of God or what our, uh, our uh, uh, liberationist theology friends call the kingdom of God, family, the family system of God, the system of God's reign and love and justice, what makes us valuable is not what we contribute, not what we create, not what we defend, not what we legislate, not what we produce, but simply that we are. And that is a really hard message for capitalists to hear. For Jesus, the kingdom is not ours to create, advocate for, defend, or produce, but simply to receive. And Jesus is so serious about this that he says that the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. If you try to come into this kingdom like you would enter any other kingdom, you would miss it. 
If you assume the values of this kingdom are like any other kingdom, then you're going to misunderstand what this kingdom is about. Who's an ideal Roman citizen? A politician? Somebody who creates wealth? Or somebody who can fight for Rome? And Jesus is saying, the kingdom belongs to those who are like these children who come in and they have nothing to legislate, nothing to defend, nothing to maneuver, nothing to coerce, nothing to produce, and nothing to fight for. He speaks of us not as creators of the kingdom, but as receivers of the kingdom. This is the, the language of we are the advancers of the kingdom or the creators of the kingdom is really sneaky in church because it sounds so godly, right? Go out and make the kingdom happen, man. And Jesus says, you don't, that's not what this is about. You and I are like children, infants, who can't even hold our heads up, receiving the kingdom. It's not ours. It's God's. And it's ours by gift. The only right we have is the right of the beloved. Jesus is so serious about this that he essentially, this kingdom is absolutely contrary to all the kingdoms that you and I are familiar with. In the kingdom of capitalism, we talk about, uh, we value people who are self-made men, right? We don't usually say self-made women. Women are generally more observant to the fact that they're not self-made. But we'll talk like we honor these self-made people. We honor these people who pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and make things happen. We honor people who make a lot of money and they did it independently. Ignoring a forward course that they drove on roads paid for by everybody else's taxes. We have this illusion of self-made. And what the kingdom of God does is it's weaning us off of these illusions. And Jesus uses the example of children because there's no such thing as a self-made child. No child drove themselves here today. Did Annika drive here today? No. Not today. She did last time. Right? Like, there's no self-made people in the kingdom. We all come as people who are recipients of divine grace. So what Jesus is doing is he's upturning what we think we contribute to the kingdom by saying what we contribute is actually simply the fact that we are, and that's it. I think one of the most dangerous things in American Christianity, and really it's, you could trace it through Western Christianity's history, is this assumption 
that the kingdom is ours to advance and create and legislate and force. I think it's dangerous because it actually goes against the very ideas of the kingdom that Jesus is talking about here. So we have the kingdom of capitalism and Jesus is weaning us off of that. We have the kingdom of moralism. The kingdom of moralism says for us to be a part of God's kingdom, we must be good. If you ask the average Christian, how do we talk about ourselves in the political realm? We're the values voters. Or the old terminology is like moral majority, right? The idea that many people have about Christianity is that we are primarily a moral code that is justified by some like theological backdrop, some vision of God as the backdrop. Listen, we are not primarily a moral code. Children are a part of the kingdom having done neither good nor bad. They're not here because they're, they're good people. And they don't get excluded because they're bad people. That's not how this works. Does Christianity have moral implications? Yes. But we're not primarily a moral. And thus we don't assume that in order to be a part of this whole thing, we have to be good. The kingdom of moralism says you belong if you're good. The kingdom of Jesus says you belong. And therefore, you can be honest about when you're not good. And therefore, you can be honest that even your goodness is often not really that great. We can be honest because it's not about us being good. This was, this was the, always the fear I had when I was a kid. I didn't go to church very often, but the one thing I learned when I went to church was you had to be good. And you had to dress the right way, and you had to be the right way, and we had to be on our best behavior. You cannot imagine the trouble I got into when I ripped that sucker from my brother. Why? Because I embarrassed my mother for not being good. And so I have this idea in my head from childhood that in order to belong to this community, I have to be and present myself in a certain way. And Jesus is weaning us off all of that. And, it, and it's, so, it's, so in, it's so subtle in the way... Let's talk about how we form our children in this for a second. He knows when you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Now, I know that's about Santa. I get it. But who is Santa? I'm going to be a rhetorician for a second, okay? How is Santa depicted in this rhetoric? Santa is an omniscient, that is, an all-knowing being who sees you when you're sleeping. So either Santa is omniscient or Santa is creepy. 
an omniscient, all-knowing being who knows about whether you're moral or not and cares enough about whether you're moral or not that if you're good enough, Santa will give you gifts. It's not a, it's not a far step for children or for us to be like, yep, that's how God is too. God watches us when we're sleeping and God watches us when we're awake and God knows everything about us, knows whether we've been good or bad, whether anybody's watching or not. And the primary thing that God wants from me is for me to be good. And if I'm good, then God is going to give me good things. And if I'm not good, then God is not going to give me good things. And I'm telling you right now, that creates a lot of theological problems. How many of us have said, I have done all the right things and my life did not end up the way I wanted it to. And I'm mad at God about it. Now listen, I'm all for times where we can express our anger to God. So don't hear this as me saying shutting down your anger toward God. We should be able to express anything to God. What I am saying is that the fundamental assumption is if I do good things, then God is required, obligated to do good things back to me. And it all comes back to this kingdom of moralism. Another way, and this is a little more of an egregious example, but I wanted to give it. A few years ago, there was a young woman uh, from my high school who was on Facebook and she had just had a baby. And her baby was not sleeping through the night. And she was having the hardest time, baby screaming all night. She was dead tired. And so she gets on Facebook and she was like, I need some help. Like she's just like desperate, I need some help. Does anybody have any idea to help me get my baby to sleep through the night? And of course you ask for help for a baby and everybody's got an opinion, right? Did you do this? Did you do this? Blah, blah, blah. And so I'm just like looking through all this. And then I see this pastor from my hometown respond and he says your baby crying through the night is its sinful nature coming out and you can't control its sinful nature it's born with it what you can do is over time bring that sinful nature into submission and I'm, I, I, I assure you, I do not know how to keep my mouth shut. But I was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It's an egregious example, obviously. But it's the assumption behind it that is interesting to me. That what we are to do with our children is to make sure that they're in moral submission to us. And you can look back at the generations wars between older people and younger people throughout Western history and you can see that the primary complaint of older people is always that younger people don't hold our morality. And if you don't know what I'm talking about because you feel like, uh, no, the younger generation really doesn't hold our morality, I'm telling you, your generation had the same experience when you went to Woodstock and your parents were like, they just do whatever they want morally there. Or I remember, I, I don't know if I said this, 
if I've ever said this, but I remember I was talking to a, a woman I worked with once. She was a boomer age, and uh, she was an older boomer, and she was telling me about when the Beatles came on the Ed Sullivan show. Are any of you that age? Okay. The Beatles came on the Ed Sullivan show and how her father was like so aghast because the Beatles were just like these long haired hippie freaks like trying to ruin American morality and her dad was livid. But when you go watch the video of them on the Ed, they're in suits and they're not like shaking hips like Elvis. Like they're just like, yeah, yeah. Right? And it's like, because what we have is this idea that like primarily what we're trying to do is pass on this morality. And Jesus is saying, listen, the kingdom of God is not like that. The kingdom of God is not trying. It is primarily not concerned with making you merely moral as if morality is what makes you acceptable to God. You, this is why I love that the United Methodist Church does infant baptism. Because we communicate through infant baptism that this child is accepted as they are, no matter what is going to happen, no matter who they are going to become. This is why I love that we do an open communion. It, I do not get to legislate who receives communion just because you have a different moral code than I do. Or just because we have the same moral code and I've failed it or you failed it. The kingdom of capitalism, the kingdom of moralism tell us that in order to belong, we have to produce or we have to consume or we have to legislate through the culture wars that everybody else obeys our morality. And Jesus is weaning us all off of all of that because it is not our kingdom to advance. It is our kingdom to receive. And we get to live it with children. My hope is that you will be the old people in my children's memories. So that when they're your age, they say, yeah, I wanna be the old people in the memories of the kids who are younger than me. Because the children are not the future of the church, they are the church now. Amy Roberts just had her baby last week. Gordon is the church. When that child gets baptized, we will all make promises to raise that child to know God. So to that end, I have an announcement. Our staff parish relations committee and I are beginning a process of putting together a job description for a children's spiritual formation role. And I want you to understand the very specifics of that language. I did not say a children's pastor. I did not say a children's ministry director because that language sounds often to me. I've worked in two mega churches. Children's ministry director sounds to me at this point, I'm not saying it always did, but it sounds to me at this point like really program heavy, really program driven. And honestly, like I've just gone over this and over this, I don't think our children need one more program. But you know what no one else seems to be doing? Spiritual formation with children. And that's the one thing we're supposed to do. Not entertain them, not give them programs, not have a, a, a gym where they like play sports during the week. 
Our one job is spiritual formation. So we are, and we are putting together a job description. My hope is that we will have a children's spiritual formation person in place by the end of April, the beginning of May. And I am really excited about this. Um, because we're communicating to them, they don't tithe, they don't turn wrenches, but what they can do is lead us in worship. What they can do is simply receive the grace of people who come to the kingdom with nothing to offer except for the fact that they are God's beloved. In my mind, this position is simply the next step of what Cassie and Mary Helen have been doing with our children for years now, which is spiritually forming them. Do you know what happens when children go, leave here and go to the children's time? The very first thing they do is they hold up this painting, Rublev's Trinity, and they do this little liturgy together. And you'll notice as the person sitting here looking at the painting, the position of the person who is looking at the painting is they're sitting, you're sitting at the table with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That there's an open seat at this table, at this dinner table, where you as the viewer are welcome to sit down. So when the children come in, they put this painting in front of them and they say, welcome. What's the Trinity talking about today? And the children will share usually what's on their own hearts. The Trinity's talking about this thing that I'm afraid of. The Trinity is talking about this really fun thing that happened to me. But what they realize is that they come and sit at the table with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit by virtue of the fact that they exist, whether they've had a good week or a bad week, whether they've been bad or good. They're simply welcome. They're welcome at this table with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, not in the future, but now. And therefore, children are not the future of the church. They are the church now. 